From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are senior reporter for Marketplace, Nancy Marshall-Genzer, and VOA White House correspondent, Anita Powell. Welcome, Nancy and Anita. Hello, Kim. Thank you. Well, here are the issues. President Joe Biden met with Germany's new leader, Olaf Scholz, at the White House and vowed the crucial Nord Stream 2 Russia to Germany gas pipeline would be blocked if Russia further invades Ukraine. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said Russia and France had not yet been able to strike a deal on de-escalating tensions around Ukraine, but said de-escalation was needed and that the meeting had provided the basis for further work on that front. With the 2022 Winter Olympics underway and a diplomatic boycott of the Games in Beijing, President Biden says that America's greatest long-term challenge overseas comes from China, and he promises to confront the country on its policies. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell criticized the Republican National Committee, RNC, for its censure of House of Representatives Select Committee members Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. McConnell also broke with the committee's language on the January 6, 2021 riot, calling it a violent insurrection. More Democratic states have announced plans to lift their indoor mask mandates in the coming weeks, pointing to the dramatic drop in daily new COVID-19 cases as the Omicron surge recedes. The move is being welcomed by some as a sign that states are learning to live with the virus, though it goes against Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, guidance encouraging universal mask wearing in schools. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Nancy, President Biden met with Germany's leader Olaf Scholz and vowed the crucial Nord Stream 2 Russia to Germany gas pipeline will be blocked if Russia further invades Ukraine. That would hurt Russia economically, but also cause supply problems for Germany. Construction of the pipeline has been completed, but it is not yet operating. Schultz told the media that Russia would pay a high price if it invades Ukraine. So does Russia understand the ramifications of these sanctions? I think so. It's all economics, and it would hurt Germany, too, that's for sure, because as you mentioned, the Nord Stream 2 is not up and running yet. It still has to be approved by German regulators. But it would double the capacity of the original Nord Stream pipeline. And it would also bypass Ukraine. This pipeline runs under the Baltic Sea directly from Russia to Germany. Other pipelines go through Ukraine. Ukraine is kind of like a middleman and charges a fee. And there are fears that this pipeline would further weaken Ukraine and isolate it. I was actually in the room during this rather dramatic exchange with President Biden, Chancellor Schultz, and the media, and it was almost comical how Chancellor Schultz nearly pulled a muscle not saying those critical words, Nord Stream 2. He was asked over and over and over again by journalists, both German and American, you know, what are you going to do about Nord Stream 2? And he said, well, we're in lockstep. We're going to act decisively and in coordination and conjunction. But he would not say the words Nord Stream 2 because it is quite sensitive. I mean, this is no small pipeline, even though it hasn't been opened. It promises to send 55 billion cubic 
meters of gas to Europe each year. And that's no small amount. That is something that they're going to have to find a replacement for. And as we know, the Biden administration has been in talks with the Emirate of Qatar to talk about sending LNG to Europe as a replacement. So there are workarounds, but I think Chancellor Schultz is finding himself in a kind of a delicate position without, you know, relief and without, you know, an immediate solution to what he's going to do to replace this huge amount of LNG that his country kind of needs. And President Biden has said the U.S. would help Germany replace that gas, but that would certainly not happen overnight because the terminals the U.S. uses to export liquefied natural gas are maxed out right now. And also, France's President Emmanuel Macron met with Russia's Putin with agreements to have more talks. However, Putin noted that the U.S. and NATO have ignored Moscow's demands that the alliance guarantee it will keep Ukraine and other ex-Soviet nations out. Also refrain from placing weapons in Ukraine and roll back alliance forces from Eastern Europe. So despite this, can we say that diplomacy is working because Russia has not made any further moves on Ukraine? Maybe, but can we start by talking about the thing that's gripped the internet, which is that weird table. The weird, 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 massive table that President Putin chose to meet with President Macron over. This table could probably see probably my entire extended family and then maybe the rest of my small town. It is a large table and it's maybe symbolic of the isolation that President Putin might be feeling. I mean, the, the practical reason for this very weird table is that he wants to distance himself from other leaders because of COVID concerns, but it is kind of symbolic of where Russia is right now, somewhat isolated. This is kind of a microcosm of the situation that we find ourselves in. Russia is isolated, facing pressure from Europe, from the United States. And right now they're not moving because their big ally, China, is holding a major international event. And it would be kind of unseemly for Putin to make any moves and kind of literally crash Xi Jinping's party. So this is where we find ourselves at now. It's probably more likely that it's not pressure from the U.S. and Europe that is causing Putin to slow his role right now. It's probably pressure from Xi Jinping to just let the Olympics play out. Also, you know, Russia is holding military drills with Belarus, supposedly has about 30,000 troops in Belarus, and Ukraine is having its own war games. So certainly preparations are being made for something. What are people saying we can expect in the coming days? Well, right now, it seems like the NATO leaders are talking amongst themselves. Right now, we have Olaf Scholz making the rounds. He is going to be soon in Kiev and in Moscow, and he's probably going to touch base with President Biden, just like President Macron did yesterday about his conversations with President Putin. And they're going to probably be strategizing and talking and taking advantage of what is likely to be an actual lull during the Olympics. Because as I said, in 2008, when President Putin entered Georgia during the Beijing Olympics, China was very unhappy about that. And I think he's unlikely to repeat that and to make that mistake again. So I think this is a time for the world powers to kind of get their story straight, get their plans together, while, as Nancy mentioned, Russia and Ukraine are both conducting war games. This is a time for a lot of this diplomacy to happen. Well, you know, there really isn't a lot of time for that diplomacy because, you know, tensions are rising. And Ukraine says Russian 
naval exercises are making navigation in the Black Sea almost impossible. So they need to do something soon. And, you know, this is the critical thing that I think a lot of people miss. They assume that, you know, commanders in chief are the determinants of conflict. But if you think about it, you have more than 100,000 young, juiced up, armed young people, men and women, on the Belarusian side of the border. And you have tens of thousands of scared, angry, prepared Ukrainians who say that they're defending the homeland on the other side of the border. And it only takes one shot to start a conflict. And it doesn't have to be an order to start a conflict. It can literally be just one bullet that can start a conflict. And that's the perilous situation we really find ourselves in today. And the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he doesn't think a decision has been taken by Moscow yet on whether to attack but yeah, I mean, you said something absolutely disastrous could happen and very soon. And also in looking at China, and of course they do have the world stage right now with the 2022 Winter Olympics underway. But when you look at the relationship between China and the U.S., while the two countries don't agree on a lot of matters, both have a strong interest in cooperating where they can and avoiding open conflict. And looking at the situation now with the Olympics, how is this relationship playing out at the Winter Olympics? Well, of course, the U.S. doesn't have any diplomats there. But also, there are some economic, real economic tensions right now between Beijing and Washington because China was supposed to purchase $200 billion worth of U.S. goods over a two-year period last year in 2020. It only met 60% of that goal. So it's way behind on purchases of things like U.S. soybeans and machinery, aircraft, and uh, the Biden administration insists it's going to hold Beijing's feet to the fire on this. We'll see. I would characterize this relationship right now as awkward. You know, I, I've just moved to the United States. And one thing that I think I've, I've observed in my six months in this country is that the thing that seems to unite the United States and, and Americans is the pursuit of stuff. We love stuff in this country. And I bring that up because the U.S. in recent days has revealed that our trade deficit surged to more than $1 trillion in 2021. And where do we get most of that stuff? China. Exactly. So this is this is a, almost a foundational American value, the pursuit of stuff. And I, I'm not above this, by the way. I do love stuff. I think we all can agree that we love stuff. But this is the foundation of the U.S.-China relationship when you think about it. This is the American way of life, the pursuit of stuff, basically. You can't make radical moves against somebody who's providing this foundational way of life for your people without consequences. And I think this is a situation we find ourselves in right now in the U.S. And there would be consequences for China, too. I mean, if you notice that joint declaration between Moscow and Beijing, you know, did warn the West not to enlarge NATO, but it's pretty ambivalent on Ukraine. And uh, China did not participate in any of the war exercises around Ukraine that Russia conducted. So China is holding back a little bit on this. That's a really good point, and that's probably because the stuff does need a market. And with this interdependence between the Chinese and American economies and societies, how will President Biden take on some of China's trade policies and looking at the human rights violations in regions of China? 
The U.S. Chamber of Commerce actually was talking about that the other day, and they said there is a possibility the Trump administration could use Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974 to launch more tariffs. And, and this is what the Trump administration relied on for many of its tariffs. Of course, you'd have to have a Section 301 investigation, and that could take about a year before there would be any new tariffs. But according to the chamber, the Biden administration is considering this, considering more tariffs. Will this improve relations with China under the Biden administration? I don't think tariffs would necessarily improve the relationship. But going back to the issue of stuff, we need China and China needs us. Mm -hmm. So I think they're going to work something out. To some extent, we've learned to live with tariffs. Maybe there'll be more exemptions for U.S. companies from tariffs on Chinese imports. But I don't think the tariffs are going away altogether anytime soon. If I can just extend this metaphor a little bit into the Olympics, because I'm kind of obsessed right now with not with the, the games, essentially, but like with the treatment of two athletes in particular. I'm talking about Gu Ailin and Zhu Yi, who are two Chinese-American athletes who are both competing for China. And it's so interesting how we see these two athletes kind of emblematic of this relationship, this closeness to China, this respect for China, but also this loyalty to the United States. And I think this awkwardness that we see embodied in these two athletes and the way that you know, the Chinese public is treating these two athletes in particular. They're heaping praise on Gu Ailin, who just won the, the gold medal in skiing, and scorn on poor Zhu Yi, who has not performed very well as an ice skater. And I think that these two young women, these talented athletes, regardless of where they're from, you know, they've put in so much work and they're putting themselves out there and you can't not admire them. But it's emblematic, I think, of the awkward, weird situation that these two countries find themselves in. And it's playing out in the most beautiful, wonderful way on the ice. Just one more quick thing. I mean, economically, Russia and China rely on each other, too. You know, Russia provides China with oil and gas and military weapons. And then China provides advanced technology to Russia. So economics plays a role here. Absolutely. Well, it's time now for a short break. And when we return, a number of GOP senators rebuke the National Party over the resolution to censor two of its representatives. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, senior reporter for Marketplace, Nancy Marshall Genzer, and VOA White House correspondent, Anita Powell. Well, a number of GOP senators, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, rebuked the National Party for its members approving a resolution censoring GOP representatives Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Adam Kinzinger of Illinois for their work on the House panel investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol and declared the actions of the rioters legitimate political discourse. So how big of an issue is this for the Republican Party as they strive for unity looking ahead at upcoming midterms? 
Well, it's really laying bare the divisions in the party. McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, was asked about this by a reporter, whether it's appropriate for the Republican National Committee to censure two sitting members of Congress and use those words, legitimate political discords, to describe the events of January 6th. And McConnell said, no, this was a violent insurrection I'm quoting here, for the purpose of trying to prevent a peaceful transfer of power after a legitimately certified election from one administration to the next. And he also said that the Republican National Committee should support all Republicans, all members of the party, regardless of their positions on some issues. I get the impression that the White House is kind of sitting back, getting out their popcorn and watching the Republicans go through this drama and watching them kind of rend themselves ahead of the midterms. And I think this is probably seen as advantageous in some ways by the Democratic side, because this really does, as Nancy said, lay bare the deep divisions in the GOP. And we have an election later this year, so this is going to have consequences, and Americans are going to have to make decisions along these lines. And to center on the events of January 6th and make this a driving issue in the political discourse ahead of an election, I think it's a bold move on the part of the Republicans, and it remains to be seen whether it's going to bear fruit at the polls. And here's just another sign of the divisions in the GOP. Kevin McCarthy, who's the congressman from California, who's the House Minority Leader, he actually defended this Republican National Committee resolution <laughs> censoring the two Republicans. He said it was meant to, he's condemning the House Committee's targeting of those conservatives. And he said it was a perfectly legitimate thing that the RNC did. So the Republican leaders in the House and Senate can't even agree on this. Another aspect of this, the Washington Post reported that the National Archives and Records Administration last month retrieved 15 boxes of documents and other items from former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence, including papers he had torn up because archives officials said the material should have been turned over to the agency when he left the White House. The newspaper also reported that recent administrations have all had some Presidential Records Act violations, including the use of unofficial email and telephone accounts, as well as the destruction of emails. So is this action by Trump a major issue for the investigating committee or a major issue for former President Trump? I think that might come down, as everything does, to politics and what is in these 15 boxes, which uh, I think a lot of us are wondering. And also, as the select committee plows ahead with all the interviews they're doing about the attack, it is also hesitant to call former Vice President Mike Pence for questioning. And in a recent speech, Pence is rebuking Trump for un-American comments about overturning President Biden's win represented his sharpest criticism to date of his former boss. What is Washington's view of this aspect of the investigation? Let me just note how long it took Mike Pence to make these comments. I mean, it took him over a year to say this, which is being noted by a lot of his critics. Yeah, and just what Pence said, he said, President Trump is wrong. Quoting here, I had no right to overturn the election under the Constitution. I had no right to change the outcome of our election. I did hear that former Vice President Pence was consulting with his lawyers about whether he would appear before the select committee, but that's a ways off. I think we need to remember that the Trump administration might be more akin to a 
lifetime reality show. There are plot twists aplenty with this crew, and we just don't know. But I think we should open ourselves up for the possibility of plot twists and surprises. So we will continue to follow this particular issue. And looking at our last topic of discussion, Democratic state governors and state health officials who most vigorously embraced pandemic restrictions are pivoting toward a new era, using Omicron's decline to dial back precautions that have become a hallmark of the last two years. They are loosening mask policies and preparing residents for the reality that COVID-19 will be around a long time. However, the CDC has not changed its policy on universal mask wearing in schools. And looking at this, how is the White House viewing the states making these changes? So Jen Sharkey was grilled on this yesterday by a number of reporters, and this is a continuing theme this week, because as we know, the CDC is saying keep the masks on, and these Democratic governors are saying it's time to move on. What the White House is saying is that they're going to wait for the CDC. They are going to wait for, you know, the gold standard medical guidance authority to say either remove the masks or keep them on. And for now, the guidance is to keep them on. And when pressed specifically by a reporter, Jen Psaki was asked, what if you live in a state where the governor says masks off and the CDC says masks on, who do we follow? And she said, I would recommend that you follow the CDC. So this is what the White House is doing. They're looking at this from this national perspective, which is reasonable for a you know a national administration to do, and saying, for now, we have to follow the national authorities and the national guidance. And the White House's COVID response coordinator, Jeffrey Zients, also said, look, in different parts of the country, we've had cases fall more dramatically. And so there will be different approaches and different timing on masks. But yeah, remember the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, it's still saying you should wear a mask in areas of high or substantial transmission. So the administration seems to be accepting that in some parts of the country, the masks will be coming off, but hopefully those are in areas that do not have high transmission. But there is, of course, growing pressure because a pandemic is not a purely scientific phenomenon. It's a social phenomenon. And what really kind of brings this home, if I may get a little bit personal here, is just the realization that my daughter who started kindergarten has not seen her friends' faces. She's been in kindergarten for half a year now, and she has not seen the faces of her friends. They've been masked. And this has some interesting psychological effects. You cannot tell when somebody is sad or angry or withdrawn or alone when their face is hidden behind a mask. I think educators are saying that this is going to affect a generation. These are children who for two years now have been cut off from these emotional cues that kind of drive human interaction. Yeah, my kids, I have twins who are in seventh grade, and there's a lot of fighting happening in their middle school, more than usual. And I don't know if that's tension over COVID or masks or having been apart for a year because we did school virtually for the entire year last year, but it is definitely taking a toll. And I think that's what's being weighed here. These mask mandates that are coming down in some of these uh, Democratic-led states, they do not all apply to schools. So you don't need to wear a mask in a restaurant, but the kids in school are still masked. Some health officials view the changes as a prelude to what a post-pandemic management of COVID might look like 
with the onus for preventing the virus day-to-day -day spread on individuals, while health departments play a supporting role in vaccinating, educating the public, and stopping outbreaks in high-risk settings. So will people be empowered to act on their own when they suspect a COVID-19 infection without the mandates and restrictions? There was a Monmouth University poll and it found that 70% of Americans said it's time to just accept COVID is here to stay and they just want to get on with their lives. And that includes 47% of Democrats, 89% of Republicans. So regardless of what state and federal officials want to do, the public appears to be ready to move on. I agree. I think as Jen Psaki said, I'm sick of the pandemic and every reporter in that room heartily agreed. I think everybody around the world is sick of this pandemic, wants it to be over and wants any sign of normalcy. But the scientists, of course, are saying maybe it's premature. So we have to weigh this. Yes, and on that note, we will have to end the show. My thanks go to our panelist, senior reporter for Marketplace, Nancy Marshall-Genzer, and VOA White House correspondent, Anita Powell. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.